Hope you brought your Bibles. Open them up to the book of Judges, chapter 2. So open your Bible. Turn on your Bible. Bring your Bible next time if you didn't this time. And uh, let's go through this. Judges, chapter 2. Now, in Western thought, we tend to order things very chronologically. We tell stories, you know, from beginning to end with a chronological view in mind. In Eastern thought, and when we deal with the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, we're dealing with a Near Eastern ancient document. In Eastern thought, they're not nearly as focused upon chronology when they're telling a story. So actually, many of the events, or at least the opening events of Judges chapter 2, take place before the end of Judges chapter 1. It's as if Judges chapter 1 told an aspect of the story. Now Judges 2 is going to back up and tell us more about the story. Because with Judges chapter 2, we begin still in the days of Joshua, the successor of Moses, when the children of Israel came into the promised land. So that in mind, verse 1 Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Now, verse 1 introduces us to a fascinating person that is seen several times in the pages of the Old Testament. This person, given this title, the angel of the Lord. Now, the translators of the New King James Version, from which I teach, the translators of the New King James Version sort of give away their opinion of who this angel of the Lord is because they start out by noting that angel, at least in my New King James translation, is capitalized. By the way, the ancient Hebrew text and the ancient Greek text didn't have capital letters and lowercase letters. They were all written in capital letters. So this it, it, isn't a distinction from the ancient text, but by the translators. And what they're trying to say by capitalizing angel in that phrase, angel of the Lord, is to tip us off on something that I would agree with, especially in this context, that this uh, angel of the Lord is God himself appearing in a human form. That might startle you. Well, wait, how could it call God an angel, the angel of the Lord? How could it be God? Well, just wait. You're going to see in the text that the angel of the Lord claims things that I believe no mere angel could claim. Michael couldn't say it. Gabriel couldn't say it. No, but God himself could say it. There are frequent Old Testament appearances of the angel of the Lord, and those appearances many times indicate that it is God himself appearing. Now, there's a legitimate question among Bible students as to if Every mention of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a divine appearance. Some people think yes, some people say no, but at least we can look at some appearances by context and determine whether or not it is the Lord. 
You see, assuming this to be a divine appearance, and I believe so for reasons we'll discover in this and in following verses, we would surmise that this was actually Jesus Christ appearing to the people of Israel before his incarnated appearance in Bethlehem. I'll say that again because for some of you that's a completely new idea. The idea that Jesus could appear in the Old Testament before he was ever born in Bethlehem. But actually, it shouldn't be such a strange idea to you. I mean, after all, we know that Jesus existed before Bethlehem, right? Jesus' existence didn't begin when he was born in Bethlehem or conceived in Mary's womb. He's the everlasting God. And he in heaven, as the second person of the Trinity, as God the Son existed even before he was born in Bethlehem. Now, why do I think that this angel of the Lord in this context is a divine person? Well, well, first of all, because the angel of the Lord here claims divinity by claiming to be the one who led Israel up from Egypt. He's the one who said that he made a covenant with Egypt. Look at the text again. Verse 1, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers and said, I will never break my covenant with you. That's the angel of the Lord speaking. And he's speaking in the first person, things that belong to God alone. You see, this person appearing in human form before Israel cannot be God the Father. Do you know why it cannot be God the Father? Because the Father is described in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 as being invisible. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, the Father is described as being the one whom no man has seen or can see. So if there is an appearance of a divine person in human or somewhat human form in the Scriptures, it has to be Jesus himself appearing. Now that may seem like a very provocative idea to you, but I would just stress again, you know that Jesus existed before Bethlehem, Why should he not, on isolated yet important occasions, appear in bodily form? And I believe it happened many times in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 18, in Genesis chapter 32, in Judges chapter 13, which we'll see down the road. Anyway, look at what the angel of the Lord, who I believe to be God himself, spoke again at verse 1. He says, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land. The first thing that the angel of the Lord, or maybe I should say the first thing that Jesus said, was to remind Israel of his great love and faithfulness to them. He had delivered them from Egypt's bondage. He gave them an abundant land of promise, and he gave them a covenant that would never break. And isn't this wonderful? You see, the angel of the Lord is going to have some stern words for the people of Israel, some words of correction. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need stern words from the Lord. Sometimes I need some correcting words from God. But I tell you, it is God's pattern always. Before he corrects us, before he gives us more difficult words, he says, remember how much I've loved you? Remember all I've done for you? You could say this, that the central act of redemption in the Old Testament 
is Israel's coming out of Egypt and into the promised land. They were redeemed from Egypt's slavery. And all the time, God is calling them back to remember that he rescued them from Egypt's slavery. The central act of redemption in the New Testament is, and by the way, the whole Bible, is the work of Jesus on the cross. So just as much as in the New Testament, all the time we hear, in light of what Jesus did for you on the cross, in light of his sacrifice, in light of his crucifixion, so right here we read, in light of the fact that I led you up out of Egypt. Child of God, would you please remember all God has done for you. When he asks you to mend your ways or, 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 or to look at your conduct, he does it in light of all that he has already done for you. And this is God's general pattern always, to remind us of his great love and faithfulness to us before calling us to obedience or before confronting us with our sin. Friends, the principle from 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 stands. We love him... Because he first loved us. And when God's calling you to have a a deeper or purer love for him, he does it always by reminding you how much he loves you. You know, we, we can only really obey him as we walk in his love and abide in his covenant with us. By the way, I do want to notice one other thing about verse one before we look at verse two. He says a wonderful line there. I will never break my covenant with you. Is that startling? God will never break his covenant with Israel. When? Never. And even though Israel never fully lived up to their part of the covenant, God promised that he would never forsake his part of the covenant. But now he confronts them. Look at verse 2. He says, you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Is that startling that God would speak in such a term? God almost seems mystified, right? It's like God's scratching his head. Now, I don't mean that literally. God is never, you know, flummoxed or confused. But it's almost as if he were here, right? It's, like God just, it's almost as if God's doing the, the Columbo routine, right? Oh, I, I understand. I'm speaking to a whole generation. Columbo? Who's Columbo? Anyway, for those of you who get it, you get it. You don't, look it up on YouTube, okay? It's like God's saying, there's just one thing I can't figure out. Why haven't you done this? Why why won't you obey me? You've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? God confronted Israel in love. The, The question was stinging in its simplicity. Do you understand? There's never a good reason for our disobedience. Never. Our disobedience is self destructive behavior, and it resulted in ruin for Israel when they departed from obedience and suffered under that covenant. You see, Israel's real problem wasn't that they didn't have enough military power or technology. It was a spiritual problem. And God says, why? Why won't you obey me? Why have you done this? But in verse 3, did you notice what he said? And here's, here's the punishment, so to speak. He says, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side. Oh, Israel, I commanded you to drive out the Canaanites, and I gave you the power and the resources to do it. I know it wasn't going to be easy. I was going to expect effort and and a fight from you, but but you had the ability to do it, trusting in me. But you didn't do it. You didn't obey me. Instead, you made peace treaties with the tribes of the Canaanites. You accommodated yourself. Why have you done this, Israel? And he said, so here's the deal, Israel. I will not drive them out from before you. God announced 
that he would allow the work of possessing the land to go unfinished as a way of correcting a disobedient Israel. You know, those words are sort of staggering. If you'd like to underline things in your Bible, underline that phrase, I will not drive them out before you. It reminds us that God will not do the work of conquering Canaan all by himself. It's almost like Israel sat back and said, well, Lord, if you want to conquer the land, do it yourself. God says, no, I won't do it for you. You're going to have to trust in me and work in cooperation with me. You know, in the early years of the campaign of Canaan, God did fight for Israel in a supernatural way, right? I mean, he knocked down the walls of Jericho. Sometimes he sent forth swarms of bees. Sometimes he sent forth great hailstones to fight on their behalf. Sometimes God just said, step back, Israel. I'm rolling up my sleeves and doing this for you. But when Israel responded with unbelief and disobedience and neglecting the clear command of God, God said, okay, you're on your own. You want to do it your own way? Well, then fine, do it your own way. See how far that gets you. He never intended it to be that way for the entire campaign. You know, we often wish that God would make the work of Christian maturity easy for us. Okay, Lord, if you want me to be a mature Christian, then just do it in me. I'll go to bed tonight and wake me up a mature Christian, okay? (laughs) Isn't that what we often think? We we just want to wake up one morning and suddenly a certain besetting sin is just gone. Now listen, sometimes God grants such a miraculous deliverance, and when he does it, we praise him for it. Do we not? But more commonly, God requires our partnership with him in the process of this Christian growth and conquering sin in our life. Our partnership with him is very important because it shows that our heart is where his heart is that we're trusting in him and his work in our life, and that we're truly growing close to God. Therefore, God says in verse 3 to them, he says, they're going to remain thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. That was an announcement that the Canaanites would remain problems to the nation. And that was promised beforehand to Israel, even before they came into the promised land. Now, that's tough words from the angel of the Lord in those first three verses, are they not? Don't you think God's being pretty direct with them? Hey, wake up. You haven't done the job. Now you're on your own. What are you going to do? Look at the response of the people in verse 4. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke all these words to the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of that place Bohim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Verse 4 is actually quite beautiful, isn't it? They lifted up their voices and wept. This emotional outburst and response of the people was hopeful. With all the weeping and the wailing, there was reason to believe that God's word had had a deep impact upon them and that they were ready to find their way towards a genuine revival of obedience and God's work among them. Sadly, that's not how it worked out. Sadly, from what we can tell from the text here, they had a good cry, and then they forgot all about it. 
You see, the subsequent record in the book of Judges shows that this initial reaction of sorrow and repentance did not mature into a real, lasting repentance. Maybe you're convicted of your sin and maybe you need, you know, you need to repent. And God stirs your heart and and there in your seat or you come up and pray with somebody on the prayer team or you just talk to somebody else or it's just you and the Lord and you're weeping tears of sorrow and repentance and you really mean it. And I don't doubt that you mean it. I don't doubt that right here, right now, you're weeping and you're broken over your sin. But listen, friend, it has to last in tomorrow too, right? Too often people will have such an experience and they'll wake up the next day and it's as if it was all gone. It's almost like they cried it out of their system. But there's no lasting fruit of repentance left behind. Real repentance shows itself in action, not necessarily in weeping. Listen, we can be sorry about the consequences of our sin without really being sorry about the sin itself, right? Oh, sure, you're sorry about all the trouble your sin has gotten you into. Duh, anybody would be. Look how messed up your life is. But are you sorry about the sin itself? Has it matured into a true repentance? You see, a person can weep and outwardly show repentance without ever really repenting inwardly. That's why the Lord challenged Israel in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to what he says. He says, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's graceful, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and full of great kindness. You see, a sign of mourning, a sign of repentance in that ancient Near Eastern culture was to tear your clothes. Clothes were very valuable things. And if you tore your clothes, I mean, you were really upset. And so you would tear your clothes. And you know what God says? He goes, listen, why don't you tear your heart instead of your clothes? It's great you make this great big show of repentance. Oh, everybody should see how sorry I am. Okay, fine, as long as it's inward as well. Now, friends, nobody should get me wrong on this. It is good to see people truly weeping over their sin, and it should never be discouraged. Matter of fact, I think it would be shameful for somebody to to fight back tears of sorrow over their sin or tears of repentance because they didn't want to look unmanly or because they didn't want to mess up their mascara. Let it flow, for heaven's sakes. Nothing wrong with your tears of repentance. But I just want to say, the tears in and of themselves are not enough. You might expect Charles Spurgeon said something quite wonderful about this. He said, one grain of faith is better than a gallon of tears. A drop of genuine repentance is more precious than a torrent of weeping. Now, on that day, at that time, I believe Israel meant it. Look at verse 5. They sacrificed there to the Lord. That was the right thing to do. You see, any awareness of sin should drive us to God's appointed sacrifice, Now, in their day, it meant going forth with the offerings of bulls and rams. What does it mean in our day? It means to look to the perfect sacrifice that Jesus has done on the cross. And friends, I don't want anybody to mistake this. When you feel convicted of your sin, drive yourself to the cross. Force yourself to the cross. By the way, this is a very handy way to discern in your life the difference between the conviction of sin and the condemnation of the devil. 
do you know sometimes they can feel similar, right? You feel terrible about your sin. You feel terrible about yourself. And sometimes that terrible feeling is the precious conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you should feel terrible about your sin. Other times, it's nothing more than the condemnation of the devil who just hates you and wants you to feel bad just for the sake of feeling bad. Now, do you want to know the difference, a good, a handy way to discern the difference between the two? Conviction of the Holy Spirit will drive you to the cross. Condemnation will just leave you in despair. Conviction of the Holy Spirit says, come to the cross, the place where Jesus died and bled and died as a substitute in your place. As I tell you almost every time I speak to you, that the guilt and the shame and the penalty that your sin deserved was placed upon him and judged perfectly by God the Father. And you can be forgiven, therefore, because the penalty for your sin was put upon him. Now, that's what, that's what they were doing right here, verse 5, where they sacrificed there to the Lord. They were driven to God's appointed way of sacrifice. And then in verse 6, it says, And when Joshua had dismissed the people. Now, again, this shows that Judges 2 begins as a retrospect, looking back to the days even before the death of Joshua, which was described in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. And this hopeful response to the words of the angel of the Lord, this started when Joshua was still alive. All right, so far so good, but verse 7 starts, well, it starts messing things up. Look here, verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Well, verse 7 is good news, isn't it? The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Joshua's legacy was seen in the godliness of Israel during his leadership. He truly was one of history's great men of God. And verse 7 also tells us that all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, you know, his immediate successors, the people around him, during their days, Israel walked rightly as well. They were faithful to God in the days of Joshua's immediate successors. But afterward, and this is the terrible news, verse 10 Afterward, a generation arose that had not seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And so verse 10 tells us, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. The new generation had no personal relationship with God and no personal awareness of his power. God was someone who their parents related to and who did good things or great things for their parents' generation. Maybe I should speak just a moment to young people. Oh, this could so easily be you. It really could. You know, you you, you hear God did great things in the days of the old people, right? People my age. (laughs) But you... You 
You have to relate to God on your own. You have to have your own relationship of love and trust him. You have to have your own conviction of sin. My conviction of sin isn't going to work for you. You have to have your own trust, your own sense of brokenness, and you have to have faith and see God do great things in your generation. It's not enough for you to worship the God that I worship and to honor the God that I worship. Or I honor has to be your own relationship with the Lord. Another generation arises and each generation has to come to its own living, breathing, filled with faith, relationship with and dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Young person, don't satisfy yourself with anything less than that. Don't satisfy yourself with the trappings of church and just kind memories of of warm Bible stories that you heard as a child. Hey, those old Bible stories were great. And they helped build within you a legitimate childhood faith. But your childhood faith was great for childhood. Now it's time for you to come up into a grown-up faith. We see do God do great things in your own generation. I think about that from time to time. I look at my generation. Oh, and I know to hear you young people talk, I should feel like I got one foot in the grave. <laughs> well, maybe I do. All right. It doesn't even matter to me. But I will say this. I feel that our generation has served the Lord well in our generation. Oh, not perfectly. I think a lot about the mistakes and the failings and the shortcomings. But you know what? I believe we've lifted up the torch of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our generation, and we've done it to the best of our ability. Now that torch passes on to you, younger generation. And you need to be able to serve the Lord and glorify him in your generation. And you know what? I'm pretty optimistic. I am. I'm excited about what I see God doing through young people today. I just want to pump them full as much as I can with a love and a passion for his word and all the other things that God's bringing in influence from other directions. I think that if I can bring to them a love and a passion for his word, that that'll be a big part of the picture of what God wants to do in the life of this young generation. You should be bold and you should be optimistic about what God wants to do, that it doesn't have to be like this as it's described in verse 10. Look at it here, verse 11. Here's the bad news as it continues on. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. See, even in the days of Joshua, Israel did not fully possess what God had for them in the promised land. Yet in that time, at least in a general sense, they remained faithful unto the Lord. And they didn't worship the idols of the Canaanites. But after the death of Joshua, not only did they fail to possess the land, but the Canaanites that were left behind seduced the Israel to the worship of those idols with the Baals and the asterisks that were among them. Don't you think it's shocking? Don't you think it's very strange that anyone would want to trade a personal, real, living God for a false God that's the figment of somebody's imagination? Can I just tell you something? There is no Baal. There is no asterisk. 
They're, they're figments of men's imaginations. They don't actually exist. And here you have the real, living, glorious, personal God who reigns in the heavens and loves and blesses his people. And people forsake the real, living God and worship these nothings. How can it be? I'll tell you one reason for it. There is something within the heart of men and women that is actually afraid of the God we actually need and the God who actually is there. We would rather serve a God of our own creation than the real living God whom we can't control. I'd rather make God in my image than worship the God who made me in his image. So I'll tell you something about that God who made me in his image. He's the boss. He's the master. I got to dance to his tune, right? He's not the silly putty God that I can fashion any way that I want to. Oh, but if I want to make my own God, I can make a God that will accommodate my sinful lusts. I can make a God that'll do what I want to do, dance, and even if it's the figment of my imagination, it'll be pleasing to me and my sinful desires. That's why verse 11 says that they served the Baals. Now I have to say something right off the bat here. I am aware, I'm almost certain that I mispronounced this and that the actual pronunciation of this God should be Baal. However, I've been saying Baal for so many years, I find it impossible to say Baal. So that's just my disclaimer once throughout the entire book of Judges. I know it's wrong. I just can't correct myself at this point. You know what I mean. The Canaanite idol Baal was an attractive rival to Yahweh because he was thought to be the God over the weather and nature for the Canaanites. When he's depicted sometimes in sculpture or artistic relief, he's often pictured holding a thunderbolt because he's the God of the weather. Now you say, well, what's so hot about the God of the weather? Because if you live in an agricultural society where everybody's economy depends directly on agriculture and you're a farmer, you need rain. No rain, no crops, no money, death. That's about the story. And so there's just this thing. If we want to be successful in our farming, we should do business with the weather god of the Canaanites. You could say in this respect that the bottom line with Baal was the bottom line. He was the god of prosperity and personal wealth. Because if you serve Baal and he gave you what Baal purported to be able to give you, of course he's the figment of imagination, but what he was supposed to be able to do was send rain for your crops and and give you prosperity. But what did they do? Verse 13 says, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asherahs. Baal and the Asherahs. Sounds like an indie band, doesn't it? Now, the Canaanite idol Ashtoreth was also an attractive rival to Yahweh because she was thought to be the goddess of love and sex and fertility. 
Well, you wanted fertility, right? Because you wanted to have a lot of kids. You wanted fertility because you wanted a lot of crops to grow up. And you wanted fertility because you wanted your sheep and your goats and your, your cows to multiply very rapidly. So you thought, well, listen, that's reason enough to worship Ashereth. But there's another reason to worship Ashereth is that you would worship Ashereth through ritual prostitution. When it's time to worship Ashereth, you'd go down to the Ashereth's brothel and you'd hire a priestess a prostitute, and you would make your offering to Ashereth by consorting with this uh, prostitute. And that had an obvious sinful attraction for people. You could say that the bottom line with Ashereth was sex and love, and the worship was accompanied by all sorts of lascivious practices. I just want you to think about the two main idols that Israel had to deal with was Money and financial success and sex and, you know, all that goes along with that. Aren't you glad that we're not idolaters today? <laughs> Isn't it wonderful that nobody worships Baal and Ashereth today, right? I want you to think about the next time. Next time you see it in yourself or you see it in somebody else, you see their idolatry after the almighty dollar, as we term it in our culture. You look at it and you just say, Baal. Next time you see somebody who's obviously given over to, they've given their life over to to sexuality or to to, to living for romance or whatever would be all of that, look and say, Ashtoreth. Because that's what it is, is it not? It's that kind of idolatry. The bottom line was this, look at verse 12. It says that they forsook the Lord. God made it clear that Israel's pursuit of these gods was nothing less than forsaking the Lord God of their fathers. But but I would say this, in all likelihood, the the common Israelite didn't see it that way. The common Israelite said, no, 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 I love Yahweh. Yahweh's great. I just want to add Baal to my life. Oh, I love Yahweh. Yes, hooray, Yahweh. But a little bit of asterisk on the side is fine. You see, what we have to understand is that the God of Israel is a jealous God. And he demands exclusive worship. You know, one biblical illustration, just one, there's many biblical illustrations, but one biblical illustration of our relationship with God is it says that our relationship with God is like a marriage. Now, sometimes this is, this guys have a hard time wrapping their head around this because in the illustration, God is the husband and we are the bride. Again, don't get tripped out on it, but that's, that's just kind of the idea there, Okay. Well, listen, everybody knows this about marriage, right? That it would be wrong for a wife or for a husband to add many lovers to their marriage, claiming, listen, I could just love them all, right? Well, honey, I love you, but I also love them and them and them. But that's what Israel thought that they could do with the Lord. You see, a husband or a wife has a righteous claim on the exclusive affection of their spouse. And God has a righteous claim on our exclusive worship. When he sees us practicing idolatry, he has every reason to say, no, I have an exclusive claim on your worship. No bales, no asterisks for you. And they did it, verse 11 says, in the sight of the Lord, verse 12 says, that they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. You see, this was the root cause of Israel's tragic idolatry the influence of the Canaanites that they allowed to remain in their midst 
led them into idolatry. And this was the bitter result of not fully driving out the Canaanites, and it was far worse than Israel ever imagined. Verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. That's a scary verse, isn't it? Verse 14, that the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. You see, the response of God to the unfaithfulness of Israel was no surprise, because God had specifically promised that he would do this in the covenant that he had made with Israel, which was characterized by blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. God made this very clear to Israel in his covenant with them. If you obey me, I'll bless you. To to use a turn of a phrase, I'll bless your sock sauce if you bless me. You'll be so blessed you can't even believe it. But if you disobey me, I'll curse you. It's up to you, Israel. What do you want? Do you want blessing or cursing? And when they turned their heart and their, their lives to idols, they found the curses, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, I want to be very clear about something. In our day and age, we serve God under the terms of a different covenant, a better covenant. And when we forsake God, when we do not abide in Jesus Christ, things may and often do go badly for us but not because God has actively set his hand against us as he did to Israel under the old covenant. God was, if I can say this, punishing Israel for its disobedience. Friends, for us, under the new covenant, all the punishment our sin deserves was poured out upon the Son at the cross. I mean, you know what? Either it was or it wasn't. Either all the punishment my sin deserves was put upon Jesus, or I have to pay some of it. Now, if it was all put upon Jesus, great, then I can be rescued. If I have to pay for some of it, well, you know what? I'll probably go to hell. But it was all poured out upon Jesus. Now, when we do not abide in Jesus, when we're, to frankly say it, when we're in sin, when we're in compromise, things go badly for us, It is simply because our actions have consequences and we reap the bitter fruit of not keeping ourselves in the love of God. God doesn't punish us the way he did Israel. But it may feel like that. Because your unwise, rebellious life, and mine as well, it can have bitter consequences, can it not? And this is what Israel came to understand. Verse 14, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. You see, the purpose of all this was that when Israel was greatly distressed, they would turn their hearts back to the Lord. God's goal wasn't the punishment itself, but repentance. You see, we should see that this hot anger of the Lord against them was actually a manifestation of God's love for Israel instead of his hate. Do you understand the worst judgment that God can do for a person who's in sin? Do you know what that is? To just leave them alone. To say, I'll do nothing with you. You want to destroy your own life? Fine. I'll leave you alone. Are you bummed out tonight because God is striving with your heart over some sin? He's convicting you. The battle rages. 
you're kind of ticked off at being here tonight because, you know, what? I walk in and the battle rages all over again. I get convicted all over. What's the use of that? Listen, you should get down on your knees and thank the God who loves you and is battling for your soul. And if you can be in stubborn sin and feel no pang of conviction, no sorrow in your own heart, then you should especially get down on your knees and say, oh, my Lord God, have I gone this far that you are leaving me alone in my sin? It's a precious thing to feel that conviction. And if you don't feel it, you should beg God for it back again. We see the same principle in the relationship between parents and children, do we not? Children often wish that parents would just leave them alone, right? Oh, why are you on my back all the time? Oh, this, oh, that, just leave me alone, just leave me alone. But parents, you know, it would be cruel of you to just leave them alone. And actually, there's something in the heart of the child that even though they protest against it, whine like crazy and all of that, they want it, don't they? They want to know that the parent loves them enough to wisely guide them, to correct them. Verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they would not listen to the judges. But they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And so the cycle is described that is going to dominate the entire book of Judges. Now, how does the cycle begin? Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them. Because of God's great love for his people, he raised up judges, heroic leaders to rescue Israel from their calamity. And notice that great first word of verse 16. God did this nevertheless. That's one of the precious words in this text, is it not? Not because Israel deserved a deliverer from God, but in spite of the fact that they were undeserving. In verse 17, sadly, they wouldn't listen to their judges but they played the harlot with other gods. God sent them heroic deliverers. It's like, oh, deliverers, deliverers. Fine, they delivered us. And then the, the, the leader would say, now here's how you walk. And they go, oh, forget it. See, that's how it is so often. You see, they wouldn't listen to them in the matters of spiritual leadership. They wanted the judges as political and military leaders, but not as spiritual leaders. But, but even though the Lord was with the judge, verse 18, Now, when they would reject the judge, they would fall back into bondage, right? They they would reject the Lord. They bring the curses of God upon them. They'd find themselves in bondage again. So verse 18, then the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. You see, during the time of the judges, Israel only cried out to God and really depended on him in times of emergency. And when they did cry out to him with groaning, he answered with pity and faithfulness. 
Friends, I believe that this principle explains why some people are in a constant state of crisis. I want to be careful here. Because I, I can't see into your life. Maybe if I or one of the pastors that we have here on staff or one of our elders, some trusted person, would counsel with you that they could see into your life and, and understand things better. So I, I make no blanket statement with this. But I will make a general statement. This is the reason why some lives are in constant crisis. Because God knows that this is the only way that they can be kept trusting in him. Now God's desire for those particular people would be that they would be in a constant relationship of dependence upon him. And that's exactly how Jesus lived. Jesus lived in a constant relationship of dependence upon his father. And some of us, I guess we're hardened enough to where we need a constant state of crisis in order to do that. Verse 19. But when the judge was dead, they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. This pattern of bondage, deliverance, and blessing, followed by sin and bondage again, was a more discouraging fact in those days And it's a discouraging fact in many Christian lives today. Let me walk you through it again. Sin, bondage, excuse me. Sin, bondage, deliverance, blessing. Sin, bondage, deliverance, blessing. The cycle just goes and goes. Now listen, this cycle shouldn't be in anybody's life, ancient or modern. But it was more understandable in ancient Israel than in the life of the modern Christian. You're part of a new covenant. You live with an indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You are made a new creature in Jesus Christ. Those are privileges that Israel in the days of the judges knew nothing of, but you do. Verse 19, they did not cease from their own doings. That's a scary statement, isn't it? Their sin was in their own doings. They couldn't blame anybody else. It was their own doings, nor, verse 19, from their stubborn ways. I find that word stubborn very interesting. It can also be translated stiff-necked. It's the same word for stiff-necked. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. It's familiar from the days of the Exodus, when Israel was coming out of Egypt in their 40 years in the wilderness. God often said, you're a stiff-necked people. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? Stiff-necked people. Well, here, he looks to him in the promised land. And he says, you're stiff-necked. I'm fascinated by that. They were stiff-necked in the wilderness, and then when they came to the promised land, they were stiff-necked. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the chain of scenery didn't sanctify them immediately. Well, some people believe in that, don't they? They believe in sanctification by relocation. (laughs) Well, I just moved. But listen, it's not going to work. Do you know why? Because wherever you go... You take you with you. And you thought, oh, if I just lived in Santa Barbara, there I could walk with the Lord, right? There I could really wake up. You brought you with you, didn't you? This is the problem. Sanctification doesn't work by relocation. A new environment doesn't always mean a new attitude. Verse 20. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said... Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, 
I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hands of Joshua. The anger of the Lord was aroused again because Israel had transgressed their covenant. By the way, it's always a little scary in verse 20 where God says, because this nation. When God's speaking about you, you want him to say something like, my people, this nation, seems a little too distant, right? But he says in verse 21, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations with Joshua left. Israel wanted these Canaanite nations around them. So you know what God said? Fine, you can have them. They'll be to your ruin. They'll make things much tougher. But this is the compromise you have chosen. You can have it. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord left those nations. You see, after setting their hearts on sinful things, Israel found that God gave them what their sinful hearts desired. And this illustrates for us the great danger of setting our hearts on sinful things. You may get to the point where God says, fine, have it. But that'll just bring you into sin and bondage and pain and tears into your life. How much better to say, Lord, I know I'll never be perfect this side of eternity. Lord, I know your work of sanctification will always be going on. I mean, I know that, Lord. But Lord, won't you make me more pure? Won't you wean my heart from the love of sin that it seems to have and and warm it towards a love for you. There's some of you tonight, you've, you've cherished sinful desires in your heart for a long time. Maybe they're desires that other people would immediately recognize as sinful. Maybe they're desires that the rest of the world would applaud, right? Status and success and all the rest. Maybe it'll be fine for somebody else, but for you, it's a sinful desire. I mean, look, I just leave those judgments between you and the Lord. You, in your own conscience before God, you know if it's a sinful desire or not. And I say, if you you won't lay that down and surrender before the Lord and ask his forgiveness and cleansing from it, you may just get it. And that won't be a blessing from God. It'll be an instrument of his correction upon your life. How we just need to bring our hearts in brokenness before the Lord and say, Lord, work on these hearts. Lord, we believe that you've given us a new nature according to who Jesus is in us. We want to live and walk in that and crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. 